Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. We have all evening long been covering an unfolding story that took a very tragic turn with confirmation from Buckingham Palace tonight that the world has lost uh, Princess Diana at age 36, dead in a car crash in Paris along with her companion of the past several weeks, Dodi El-Fayed, one of the heirs to the Harrods department store fortune, a venerable department store fixture in London. Welcome to Diana Solved with me, homicide cop Colin McLaren. I've spent the last 22 years investigating the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, and now I've returned to Paris with a team of investigative journalists, Dylan Howard and Aaron Tinney, and French paparazzo, Pierre, to see if we can finally find some answers to the questions that have baffled investigators since August the 31st, 1997. There were so many theories about the driver, about the car, about the crash, about everything concerned with Diana's death. We had to wait for a very, very long time to try and get to the truth. And the truth is still not been fully disclosed. In previous episodes, we learned of Diana's deep unhappiness during her marriage to Prince Charles, of her loneliness and alienation from Buckingham Palace, and of how the enemies she made among the royal family and in government and big business through her landmines campaign led her to fear for her life. She thought, my goodness, this would be an easy way to get rid of me. Just put a tamper with the car and I'll go off the road. She sat at her desk often late at night and wrote me notes. And this letter goes on for 10 pages. And part of it reads, this is the most difficult part of my life. I fear that Charles is going to organize an accident in my car. I'm going to die of head injuries and be killed in order that he can marry Camilla. We also heard how, by the time of a holiday with new flame Dodi Fayed in late August of 1997, the media frenzy around the princess had reached new levels of madness. It was uh, a penny for her thoughts. Um, the world around her, although the penny turned into multi-million dollar there was a feeding frenzy which began with that picture of the kiss on the boat. The media were locked in and they wanted more. So they followed the princess all the way to Paris and they were determined to get a picture of their own 
every single photographer wanted their own picture of the princess, which would be their property. In this episode, I'm going to examine Diana's last night on Earth to see just what the details of her final hours can tell us about how and why she died. They should never have stepped outside the hotel that night. They should have just stayed there. On Saturday, the 30th of August, 1997, Diana and Dodie arrived in Paris after spending the previous nine days together on the French and Italian Riviera. We're now in Paris, where we're going to retrace the events of that night as they actually happened. I'm standing in the middle of Place Vendôme, which is a unique, beautiful place in the middle of Paris. One of the most architecturally fantastic places I've ever seen. It's also the home of the Carlton Ritz Hotel, which of course is owned by Mohammed Al-Fayed, the father of Dodi Al-Fayed, who was courting Princess Diana. Sun shining, most magnificent summer, just like it was 22 years ago, when of course Lady Diana snuck into this hotel with Dodi Al-Fayed. They needed to have a talk, get together, perhaps stay the night, because she was going back to London. in uh, two chauffeur-driven limousines hired by the Fayettes. They went into the Ritz and they had their meal. They went up to the Imperial Suite. Unfortunately, the paparazzi, they were onto it. And they'd come from the local airport all the way in here, cat and mouse with the paps. And then they finally arrived, finally got into the hotel. And from then on, it was all mystery as the paparazzi waited outside, as we are just now. And I'm with one of the original paps, one of the guys that was there way back in 1997, Pierre. He was waiting, looking, wondering what was going on and feeding off information from the driver, Andre Paul, as he was coming in and out of the hotel, giving tips, giving little teasers as to what might be happening next as the clock ticked towards midnight. They had just arrived earlier that day from Italy, from uh, Portofino, I reckon. And of course, uh, it, since it wasn't an official visit, nobody knew why they were here. All, all we knew it was only logical that they would stay here because the hotel belonged to uh, Dodi Fayette's father. Although they didn't come here at first, they went to Rue Arsenusay at first, and then they came to the Ritz around late in the afternoon. I don't remember exactly what time, but it probably was like six o'clock or something uh, in the evening when they arrived here. American tourists Jack and Robin Firestone had also arrived in Paris that afternoon as part of their European holiday. We got onto the Channel train from London on Saturday, August 30th, and arrived in Paris on that train at about 3 p.m. And uh, we took a taxi cab to the Hotel Castile and got there at about 3.30. We did not know the hotel that I had booked was just a few hundred feet from the revolving rear door of the Ritz. As Jack and Robin left their hotel that evening, they noticed the waiting paparazzi. When we left the hotel and looked diagonally left across the street and saw this group of photographers, they weren't taking photos. It was as if though they were waiting for someone or something to happen and they were very anticipatory. 
and there was a real energy about them. They were holding professional camera equipment, microphones, the whole nine yards, and, and they had motorcycles that were parked in front, and they just looked very apprehensive, very nervous, very on edge, and just pacing back and forth, and it looked like maybe they were making a movie. The paparazzi represented no danger to her whatsoever. All they wanted to do was to take a photograph as she left the Ritz Hotel. The relationship with Dodie was not a secret. No one was surprised that they were there. Had she come out of the Ritz, posed for a photograph, then there is every chance, with you know one or two exceptions, the paparazzi wouldn't have pursued her on their motorbikes you know, down the Champs-Élysées and into that tunnel. Of course, being paparazzi, you had some special privileged information that was getting fed to you. I found this out later, but of course you were on the spot. You knew exactly at that moment through information being fed to you and a few others from the driver of the limousine that was going to take Lady Donor away on Paul. Do you remember that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Henri Paul came out of the hotel and I was sitting uh, with uh, a friend of mine, Serge Benamou, another photographer. Mm. And he came up to us and started to casually talk to us and give away, he started to give away information to us, which was uh, quite odd because he came, uh, he came in and out of the hotel and he did talk to us uh, several times. I don't mm. remember how, you know, how many times, but several times. And while he was back inside, my friend was telling me, he's probably <clears throat> lying to us because he's the head of the security because my friend knew who he was and his job is to not to speak to us. Uh, certainly so not deliver, you know, sensitive information. What was Henri Paul up to? Was he trying to feed the waiting photographers false information? Or was he revelling in the attention his status as security for Princess Diana suddenly gave him? We'll analyse Henri Paul in detail in the next episode. However, for the moment, the paparazzi weren't buying whatever he was selling. And they weren't only covering the front door of the Ritz either. This is what you do when you have um, in Paris, even to this day. This is common sense. You have a, a venue that has a back door. Mm-hmm. You make sure you secure the back door and you put people there just in case. It was after midnight, August the 31st, and cameras were still crowded outside the hotel entrance. Jody hatched a plan to distract the paparazzi. He ordered the two cars, the couple that arrived in, to be ready at the front of the hotel as a decoy. Another car was brought in to the back entrance to enable their secret getaway. Dodie was extremely pissed off, basically, by paparazzi and what they've been doing. He came up with a plan to lose the paparazzi, in other words, exit the Ritz Hotel with no paparazzi knowing about it. That was an interesting plan, really. This is Dodie hatching a plan. Let's think about this for just a minute. Dodie Al-Fayed's in love with this wonderful woman, Lady Diana, and he's now turning into a security consultant, hatching plans about escaping or getting away from the paparazzi who have been pursuing this couple for a better part of two or three weeks. Where is the real security manager for Lady Diana? Where is the head of security for this hotel? For the whole of this operation, Dodie's running the show. So you've got a lovesick Romeo hatching ridiculously stupid plans. Dodie and Diana had agreed with his security at the last moment to take a car from the back of the Ritz. That 
was the car, of course, in which they died. It was driven by Henri Paul. I guess you've got to really think back as to who Lady Diana was. She had the highest profile of any woman on the planet. Happens to be the most popular woman on the planet. And this plan by this man, Dodi El-Fayed, was a nightmare. Things were strained between the bodyguards and Dodi El-Fayed. When Dodi came up with his plan to leave the Ritz by the back door with a new limousine, the bodyguard told him in no uncertain terms that this is nonsense and he shouldn't do it. And how do we know that took place? Because the CCTV has pictures of them arguing, but no sound. Diana's bodyguards that night were Trevor Rhys-Jones and Kez Wingfield, both of whom worked for Mohammed Al-Fayed, and not Scotland Yard or the British Secret Services. As former military men, they were undoubtedly experienced, but they had never had to deal with anything like Princess Diana before. Here's TV journalist and author of Diana, The Last Days, Martin Gregory. Basically, Dodie had devised a plan to leave by the back door of the Ritz with Henri Paul at the wheel, and the bodyguards did not think this was a very good idea, because Henri Paul they didn't know, apart from driving them from the airport to the hotel in the afternoon, and they said, we should use the chauffeur-driven limousine that we brought down to the Ritz, that brought you and Diana to the Ritz. And Dodie disagreed and said he was going to take a car from the back of the Ritz. My inquiries way back then, 22 years ago, had it that Mohammed Al-Fayed himself told Dodie that Henri Paul will drive, he will be your driver. And that's, I think, now become very clear in the different inquiries, Operation Pageant that the London Police undertook some years back. I think it's become established fact now that Mohammed insisted that Henri Paul be the driver for Dodi Al-Fayed. Well, once the bodyguards were told it had been okayed by Mohammed Fayed, the argument was over. It was to be a fatal decision. Just after midnight, there was a movement in the hotel. Al-Fayed and Lady Diana and the bodyguard and this same man, Henri Paul, did leave the hotel. Yes. But they left, left by the back way, didn't yes, they? The back, the back door. Yeah. Yes. So that I found out a few minutes after they'd gone because I had, uh, I, I, I remember somebody came back from the back door uh, where five or six uh, photographers was, uh, you know, waiting, were waiting and informed us that uh, gone. everybody had gone. There was no need for her to leave the Ritz Hotel that night. They'd been backwards and forwards all evening. Dodie couldn't decide what he wanted to do. Diana should have put her foot down. I spoke to her that evening. She was desperately looking forward to coming home the following day. She was missing her children. She hadn't seen them for a month, which was quite normal because that's how the custody arrangements worked. She just wanted to get back to London. If she had stayed at the Ritz where they were in this enormous suite, Everything would have been absolutely fine, but for some reason, a reason we'll never know, Dodie decided that they had to go back to his apartment. So they were stalking out the back entrance and the front entrance of the Ritz. And the princess decided, late at night, to go and look at Dodie Alfred's new flat in the Champs-Élysées. Late at night, they took 
that fateful journey across Paris, underneath the bridge, into her final chapter. The plan was a mess. The paparazzi knew what Dodie was up to and had men stationed at the back entrance of the hotel. Henri Paul, who was not the usual driver, was behaving erratically and as they dodged the flashbulbs, climbed into the Mercedes and sped away, another basic, inexplicable error was made. They weren't wearing a seatbelt. Nobody was wearing a seatbelt. It was quite surprising because Trevor Reese Jones was the bodyguard in front and he would have had in his manual, in his training, the idea that seatbelts should be worn, but they weren't. Diana should have been wearing a seatbelt. Had she been wearing one, she might be alive today. With Dodie's attempt to outwit the Paps already a failure, Henri Paul now attempted to outrun them. Henri Paul had his foot on the gas and the Paps were left behind. The last thing she saw was the Eiffel Tower lit up. And as you enter the tunnel, the last thing you see is the Eiffel Tower on the left bank. However, at the front of the hotel, Pierre, still hoping for his own big money photo of the princess and Dodie, was also forced to improvise. No, well, since there was a car that belonged to the entourage of Alphayette sitting at the front of the hotel that I could see, I figured that my only chance of catching up was to follow that car wherever it was going. And that's what I did because that car actually departed shortly uh, after, after that. I did follow that car uh, all the way up to uh, Dodi Fayette's apartment, Rue Arsenusai. That car, with Pierre close behind, arrived at Dodi's apartment safe and sound. But there was no sign of Diana. I could see that there was some people that mm. were obviously with uh, the, the, the Fayette crew or mm. team, if you like. Uh, that were very nervous and they were picking on their watches every 10 seconds and so I could clearly feel that something was, was wrong and I thought that they were expecting them, they should have arrived already but they haven't. But you got a message, a few words that made something really important. Absolutely. What was, was that? It was the very early days of the cell phones and as a journalist we had some, all of us. I made a phone call to Romuald Ra, which was a friend of mine, and I managed to talk to him for a few seconds and I remember clearly that he was in a state of panic and he, I could only hear Alma Tunnel accident and then the line shut down there. And you, and you went there? And before I went there, I went to the Al-Fayette people and I told them, I know something is wrong, I can see uh, you guys watching your watch every 10 seconds. Just to inform you, I just was in contact of a photographer who was behind you know, Diana and Dolly and there was an accident at the Alma Tunnel. And uh, just after I finished my sentence, they all rushed running into the different cars. I ran in, uh, towards my driver and we all drove down mm. together mm. into the tunnel. After the car containing Diana and Dodie sped away from the Ritz, it headed south towards the River Seine, crossing the Place de la Concorde and then making a sharp right onto the Cause Lorraine. As Henri picked up speed, the paparazzi struggled to keep up, and after jumping a red light by the Champs-Élysées, he left them for dead. But still he accelerated, racing towards the tunnel under the Pont de l'Alma. 
Exactly what happened next has been the subject of 22 years of conspiracy and conjecture. But a few facts are agreed upon. The first of these is that, as the Mercedes approached the tunnel entrance at 23 minutes past midnight, another vehicle suddenly appeared, a white Fiat Uno. Only Paul approached the Alma Tunnel and he swerved to avoid the white Fiat Uno, but just scraped it. It obviously did hit Fiat you know, whether that was an accident by the driver driving too fast into the tunnel or whether the Fiat Uno was in the wrong lane, I can't take it beyond that. I don't know what part the Fiat Uno plays other than it obviously had a role as a vehicle that was there. The French investigators managed to retrieve the paint from Mercedes after the crash, although they never found the white Fiat Uno. But they know it was there because of the forensic work that they did. And let me just say to you, in the whole of this case, which is one of the many extraordinary things about it, this white Fiat that collided with the Mercedes S280, which Diana and Dodie were traveling, this Fiat which existed, which left residue and white paint, on the wreck of the Mercedes has never been found. And the driver of the white Fiat which collided with the Mercedes has never been identified. Seconds after entering the tunnel, tragedy. The car careered into Pillar 13 and then spun round and was facing in reverse the opposite direction when the paparazzi and everybody else arrived. Dodie was dead. Audrey Paul was dead. The chasing paparazzi arrived minutes later. Some tried to help. Others, it is alleged, took photographs of the wrecked car. At half past 12, the police arrived and five minutes after that came the ambulance. We've now turned up at the crime scene place to Leoma and... You arrived here 45 minutes later after the accident, but of course it was busy. And in your memory, can you tell us exactly what you recall? Yes, so um, we drove down from Rue-Arsenusite to the Alma Tunnel really quickly, super fast. We took us like maybe three minutes to go. I was on one side of a tunnel where I could see the car very clearly. I could see uh, there was already a couple of ambulances. I could, and I run down the tunnel, and I almost entered the tunnel. Only just there was a policeman at the entrance of the tunnel who stopped me and pushed me outside the tunnel. Would I, if he would have pushed me inside, I would have been arrested like the other ones, you know, like the other photographers. This is the natural approach entrance of the tunnel. That, that's not the, the exit. Not the exit, the perfect, entrance of the perfect. tunnel, which the car used. Yes. So I got really within a few yards of the car. So I saw the car, and that was my first shock. You could see the, the state of the car. It was absolutely destroyed, mm -hmm. and I was shocked because I had never, ever seen a Mercedes in that state, ever. Straight away into my mind, I got like quite emotional. I said, oh my God, whoever was inside that car must be either dead or in a terrible shape 
And then I saw my friends all lined up against the wall on the other part of the tunnel, on That's the correct. other side behind the poles. Uh, and I had, a, I had a really quick glimpse. It, it, I was there maybe for honestly five seconds before I got thrown out by the policeman. Yeah? Uh, I think whoever, they had already put Diana and Dodie inside the ambulance, which, was, which were parked up, up, uh, uh, in front of the car. Mm -hmm. uh, there was two of them, two mm -hmm. ambulances, mm -hmm. I can remember very clearly. Uh, there was a lot of blue, blue lights. Uh, it wasn't too noisy. It wasn't really chaos. It was very busy, very intense. Pierre had arrived at a scene of utter devastation. As paramedics desperately worked on saving the life of the critically injured princess, police had detained the paparazzi who had caught up with the car after the crash and confiscated their cameras and film. Pierre was able to watch the debacle from the entrance of the tunnel and then at 1.41am, over an hour after the crash, he followed Diana in the ambulance to the hospital. It's chaos and by then all my friends are still under the tunnel or the paps are lined up against the wall. And then I saw all my friends be picked up by in a police truck. They took them away and then, then I... I followed the, the first ambulance yeah. uh, all the way down to La Pitié Salpetria. Yeah. I didn't know who was inside, of course. The ambulance was driving so slowly, and I remember I was with another photographer following, Thierry Arban, and we said to one another, whoever is inside there is really in the critical state because the ambulance should be really speeding now. Only Paul and Dodie were declared dead at the scene. But at that time, both Diana and bodyguard Trevor Reese jones were still fighting for their lives. As the news began to break around the world, initial reports were confusing. I heard the news in London because I'd just taken my family out to the theatre and we'd come home. And a telephone call came my way from Lucia Fletcher de Lima, the Brazilian ambassador's wife, who is a close friend of the princesses. She'd heard the news on CNN. She said, ring her, Paul, see if she's OK. I've heard she's been in an accident. So I rang her mobile phone and it just rang and rang. Now, I thought that's strange because she always keeps it with her. So I went to her office and waited for news. I thought if there's going to be any news, it will come from Balmoral. And sure enough, all her staff started to gather and Balmoral told us that the princess had been involved in an accident in Paris and she'd injured her leg and her hip. It was in the middle of the night, about o'clock in the morning, and I got a call from CNN. They said that Dodie had been killed and that Diana had got out of the car and, but had a broken leg. And I just thought, poor Diana, she just found happiness with Dodie, because this is what I was thinking. And then, typically, her happiness has all been taken away again. It soon became clear that Diana's injuries were far more serious and further complicated by a heart attack after the crash. Eventually, despite fighting for over three hours, all attempts to save her life proved futile. At 4am, local time on Sunday the 31st of August 1997, Diana, Princess of Wales, died. She was just 36 years old. I was just stunned, really. Couldn't believe that um, someone who was so sort of full of life, A, could be dead, but B, could be sort of killed in such a profoundly ordinary way. A terrible tragedy, but just so 
banal in a way. And that the diner of all people should die in a car crash when she took such great care when she was driving and always wore her seatbelt, safety belt. It seemed just completely wrong. You know, I just thought what a terrible waste. For Diana's loyal butler, Paul Burrell, the shock and disbelief were almost immediately replaced by a sense of obligation and responsibility. But my duty now is to take care of her. I need to get to Paris as soon as possible. I need to protect her in life, in death, the way I did in life. So the first British Airways flight to Paris was around about 6.30 in the morning. So I was there by 7.30 and met by the British ambassador. And the nurse took me into the room and I was met by the sight of a princess lying on a bed covered by a sheet. And I approached the bed and it was a very warm night in Paris. And I remember seeing a, a fan whirring on the bedside table. And as it moved towards the princess, her hair moved and I could see her eyelashes moving. So I took her hand and I said to her, it's okay, you can wake up now. It's okay, I'm here. And she didn't wake up. For others, the sense of professional duty meant something rather different. I got a call and the phone rang and I uh, picked up the phone and it was my agent in Paris and said, there's been an accident and uh, I, I, it was, I was dumbstruck, I, I was dumbfounded. I, 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 I just, the first reaction was get to the office. Diana, Princess of Wales, has died after a car crash in Paris. She was taken to hospital in the early hours of the morning. Surgeons tried for two hours to save her life, but she died at four o'clock Paris time. She was in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person. And all the stars collided and she was gone. It was a perfect storm. Everything came into alignment at the wrong time. The seatbelts weren't being worn. The car was driving too fast. The driver was in inebriated. They were being chased by the paparazzi. It was just a perfect situation for an accident. In a statement, Buckingham Palace said, the Queen and the Prince of Wales are deeply shocked and distressed by this terrible news. My first thought was, oh my goodness, they've got everything they ever wanted. Now they're rid of her. All their birthdays have come together. Next time on Fatal Voyage, Diana Case Solved. There's a famous bar called Harry's Bar, and I spoke to staff there. There's another bar some distance from there as well, which is a gay bar, and he wished to drink there as well. And they all said that he'd popped in during the afternoon. He'd knocked off during the sort of three o'clock, four o'clock period, and, and they recall him having a pastis and a different drink at these different hotels. And then he went home, and it was around about at 7 p.m. he was at home, and then he was recalled to the Ritz. But sadly, Dodi Al-Fayed and his father, because you have to blame Mohammed Al-Fayed too, because it was his hotel and his staff, put him in a car with a chauffeur who was actually over the alcohol limit and who drove her to her death.
Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved, is hosted by me, Colin McLaren, executive produced by Dylan Howard, and is a production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavour Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson, and Andy Tillett. The series is produced by Billy Spear and written by Dominic Utton. Reporting by Aaron Tinney and Doug Montero. With additional research by me, Colin McLaren. The series is mixed and engineered by Sean Kravitt, Sam Adder and Benstown. There is so much more to this story and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved, wherever you get podcasts. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.